Welcome to the Starfish Storytellers, the podcast that makes a difference one story at a time by bringing storytelling to life. This is Annie. So uh, back in 2017, I was working for our denomination's national office, the Unitarian Universalist Association, which has its headquarters here in Boston. Um, That's what brought me out to the Boston area. Um, And of course, at that time, there were a lot of people who were very concerned about Donald Trump being our new president and um, and how we could show up for people who were being impacted by his policies, um, particularly immigrants. And I had been interested in immigration justice for quite some time and had um, been working a bit with Movimiento Cosecha, which is um, a national group that has a local chapter. They were um, one of the many groups behind the driver's license bill we finally got passed here in Massachusetts um, more recently. But um, but there was a um, leader at our at our Unitarian Universalist Mass Action Network, who I knew, um, who, and that's a, that's a statewide network where we work mostly on legislative organizing. Um, and she got looped into this um, group that was doing accompaniment in Framingham. And she was really inspired by how people would like go with um, immigrant members of their communities to their immigration court hearings as a way to show support and solidarity and she was like, we should do this. Um, and she got really excited about mobilizing an interfaith network in Boston to do that. And so I was interested in this too, and I thought this is a great fit with, I'm, I'm a minister, I'm interested in this, but the work I was doing professionally at the time was around um, young adults, and, and um, it was nationally focused. It was like all of our congregations all over the country helping them do better ministry with young adults and college students and stuff. So I was like, this is cool. So I went to the meeting and, um, you know, we started like kind of preparing to do this work, but there was this really important question, which was who is going to want us to come with them to court? Like who knows us, who trusts us? And it became really apparent that a lot of the faith communities that had sent representatives to this meeting didn't have direct relationships with undocumented individuals, um, lived in like very segregated parts of you know, our city and our greater Boston area. Um, And so it was sort of this, it was like we were gonna build this whole thing to do this thing we wanted to do. We had the resources, but like, where were the people? Like, obviously the people are there, but we didn't know the people. So nevertheless, uh, the the woman who was in charge of mass action at the time, um, she was like, no, we're gonna find, we're gonna figure it out. She she had a can-do attitude. In the meantime, I had gotten to know this um, labor organizer who, who worked for Jobs with Justice through my um, other like organizing work outside of my, my paid work. And, um, and one night I was like meeting with her and kind of casually and she was like, hey, you're a pastor, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a minister. And she was like, well, I just found out because her friend um, who, who was a janitor at MIT had been um, detained by immigration and he had a, a lot of support because he had a union he was part of, he had a church he was part of, um, he was, you know, a lot of organizers had his back and, and he was um, at that time being detained at the Suffolk County Jail in Boston because um, they had a contract with ICE, uh, with immigrations. Um, and so she was like, I found out from my friend, he said um, that pastors can go into the jail a lot more easily than regular people and he also said there's a lot of guys in here who need support. He's like, I have support. I've got all these people who have my back. A lot of guys in here don't have that. 
and she's like can you so we want to like send you in there to like find the people who need the support and I was like and she's like and we want to support them and I was like I can do you one better like I also have this whole network of people who want to help and they don't have anybody to help so um I went in and there wasn't any way to like pre-arrange it like it's very hard to communicate with people who are in jail so I just show up and request a meeting with this man and he has no idea who I am or why I'm there and I'm like hi I'm your friend's friend and I'm a random minister do you know some people who need some support and he was like yeah so he just gave me their names and their um yeah I think just their names and I wrote them down and um and then I came back and then I passed the other name to a friend of mine who's also a UU minister um and also speaks some Spanish and uh, they were Spanish-speaking individuals and I went in, and so this time I'm meeting this random Spanish-speaking man who has, like, no idea I exist or why I'm requesting him. And he thought I was going to be a lawyer. He was very disappointed that I was just a pastor with mediocre Spanish. Um, and I hadn't used my Spanish much in a long time. But we managed, I managed to get across, like, I know some people who want to help you and other people um, who are currently being detained and... Um, and so, you know, I got a little bit of basic information from him. I had no idea what I was, like, what I needed to be asking, what was important. Um, there's this number that's um, called the alien registration number, or the A number, and that's, like, the most important number, because with that, you can, like, look up when a court hearing is, you can find out a lot more information. Like, you need the A number for everything, and I took his A number down wrong. Like, I got a digit wrong. It wasn't even the right number of numbers. <laughs> Um, and which I know all of that now, but I had no idea. I just was like on this mission to like find the people who were being organized inside by this awesome uh, guy inside and connect them with the people who were trying to support outside but didn't have the connection. So um, we were able to then get him a lawyer um, based on you know pulling some resources from this crew and started accompanying him to his court hearings. And um, my friend went in and visited another man got accompaniment for him for his court hearings and pretty soon we started building this network that consisted mostly of people who were inside immigration detention organizing inside trying to help each other because there's like incredible mutual aid going on inside a lot of language help for folks who don't have english um a lot of just like passing and sharing resources so you know pretty soon my cell phone number was like in everybody's hands um and then there was this of different faith communities. It was a lot of Unitarian Universalists, a lot of Jewish folks from different Jewish communities and a few Christian communities too. Um, and we ended up like building this network that now, um, you know, it's, it's, it's called the Boston Immigration Justice Accompaniment Network. It's got like a whole, we started a whole 501c3 to have our bond fund. So we have a fund that can pay for bonds to get people out of immigration jail. Um, and we've bonded out uh, a lot. I should know the stats, I don't, but we've bonded out a huge number of people um, and we support folks um, who are fighting deportation or currently detained um, and we've done a wide range of things from host people in homes, one person accompanied someone at the birth of their child, like was at the birth um, because their spouse was still being detained um, and it's there's a million beautiful stories I could tell, but it all started just because like, I happened to randomly know people and then because the people were ready when the need came. And I, I think it's a really important lesson. And like, you don't always know when the need's gonna come, but if you're ready, then you can do what you're being called to do. You can do what your values call you to. Um, if you're not ready when that relationship strikes, then uh, it's a lot harder. So that's, that's my story.
Hi, this is Megan, and I'm gonna tell you about the difference it's made to me to be a part of building the junior youth group at the First Parish in Bedford. We like to think of First Parish as a spiritual hub with a civic circumference, and this affects all of the way we lead our parish life. Um, on Wednesdays in Bedford, there's a half day, and so there's a whole bunch of young people who roam around our small town wondering, is the library fun and cool, or can I go to the one little Ted's, what is it, what's it called? The place across the street. Ken's. Ken's Pizza. Um, there's not too much to do. Maybe you go to Starbucks, but you're kind of looking for something to do. Junior Youth Group became a place to gather with friends and with very supportive mentors and where the, the fun was, but there was also a chance to be a part of something meaningful. So there's always an opening ritual, such as like someone brings a poem that's meaningful to them and they share it and um, light a little chalice and have a few words um, that calls us to something greater than ourselves. And then there's all sorts of fun things, whether it's just group games that do team building, where there's a joys and sorrows where you share something on your mind and heart. Um, but some of the things I liked the most would happen every year and people would look forward to them, such as supporting the Lowell Transitional Living Center where people needed socks and clothes and hats and things for warm weather. So the young people would raise some money, they would put up a Christmas tree, cut out stars, write, you know, hat, shoes, something like that on the star and make it look nice, put it in our common room and people would bring home the stars bring back something to give or a little bit of money. And then on a particular day, we'd walk in the cold all the way down to Marshall's and shop and then give it all away. And it was just this feeling of, I can't always make an enormous difference, but I can make uh, this difference. And starting from a young age where you think, I'm, I'm part of a group that cares, that we build each other up to care for the whole better. We want to leave no one out. And this sort of was the culture that built up in the youth group over time, all the years that I was a part of it. And I know, I think Annie, who now leads it, has had the same experience that, um, you know, time and again, young people experienced hard things in their lives, like around school shootings and the anxiety and the fear around, is my school safe? I remember coming back to my office and finding that a group of, it was actually slightly younger, young people, but these were all the fourth and fifth graders that soon were to be in junior youth group, were, um, they had, I saw the screen, I was outside my office and I saw the screen pop out of my office window and a foot emerge from inside. And I realized, you know, I ran inside, well, you know, go back, get back, what are you doing? You can't, it's too far to jump, what are you doing, you know? Turns out they were acting out, what do you do if there's a school, if there's a shooter? And they were, pretending they had gathered and they were hiding under the desk and they were trying to escape from the room by holding onto each other's arms to make a rope out the window. This is a real fear for them that the world is not safe and it meant so much to me that they ran to the place they knew was safe. And, you know, churches try to be a place of healing and inspiration, whether the sanctuary is a place the physical sanctuary, the room is a place people come to to 
think through the hard things and the big things in their life or they come and they meet their one person is going to give them a hug that week or they sing something familiar or maybe they hear words of inspiration but we're all desperate for community I think we all went through the pandemic and are just struggling to figure out what what's important what where can I find community where can I be part of building a a better world and not do it in isolation and not do it just on your phone in your own little room. Yeah, and the young people really inspire me. They're so creative in the ways that they um, combat isolation. They, they want to be with each other. They want to lean on each other and be there for each other. Hello, my name is Liana Henry, and welcome to the Starfish Storytellers. I'm the CEO of the Black Dog Group, a Marcom and project management firm headquartered on the east coast of the U.S. in quaint colonial Bedford, Massachusetts. I'm your host and passionate about storytelling, and I'm actually on a mission to raise up the next generation of storytellers. We named ourselves the Starfish Storytellers after the Starfish Story. The moral of the Starfish Story is based on the power of one. No matter how big the challenge, each action we take makes a difference and has an impact. One step, one starfish, and one story at a time. Every episode, we welcome a new storyteller who will share their story meant to inspire and connect with you. Then we'll break it down and offer tips for any listeners who are ready to tell their own stories. So thanks for tuning in. Now let's get started. Today's episode is about social impact storytelling, where stories can sow hope, inspire, and make change happen. And with me today are two well-known faces and names in Bedford, Massachusetts. I want to welcome Reverend Annie Gonzalez, the Acting Senior Minister and Minister of Faith Development, and Reverend Megan Lines, the Parish Minister of the First Parish in Bedford at the Unitarian Universalist Church. I'm really excited that you're both here, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for Great having us. Great to be here. So you told us a couple of amazing stories. Um, they were very, very moving, uh, but I didn't know if you wanted to maybe introduce yourselves maybe in a little bit more depth. So I don't know, who wants to start? Sure. Um, so I'm Annie, and um, I grew up in central Illinois. I grew up Unitarian Universalist, um, and I knew I wanted to be a UU minister since I was like in high school. I when I looked back at my pre-SAT test, I saw that I had circled clergy for what, what's your like hoped for career. Um, so I went to seminary out of, out of college and became a UU minister. And um, a job at our headquarters brought me out to Boston from, um, from where I was at the time, which was in California. Um, and after a few years there, I uh, actually it was when I learned that Megan was leaving her position. Megan has returned to us briefly, mm -hmm. um, but she was at First Parish Bedford for nine years um, as the second minister, the parish minister. And I learned that she was leaving this position, um, and I got so excited because this congregation has a great reputation in our denomination. Um, John Gibbons, our minister emeritus, um, was someone I had worked with before a little bit and um, had you know a lot of admiration for. And the congregation was doing really exciting things um, like suing the town over their solar panels, um, like uh, harboring someone in sanctuary 
um, for her immigration status. And so I was like, I want to go. Um, so I was so happy to, uh, land that job and and be able to start working in Bedford. But, um, I live in Malden, Massachusetts. Um, I have a almost eight year old kiddo who I share custody with. Um, she's with me half the time. And I also live with three other adults and they're two babies that they have between the three adults and one dog. So we keep it lively over there in Malden. Nice. And I'm Megan Lenz, and I, like Annie said, um, served as the parish minister for nine years and left in 2017 to basically to have my kid. And I'm a single mom by choice, and I knew I wanted to pour my heart into trying to be able to have him. And it, it, what I dreamed of came to be, and he's now four, and uh, I needed uh, another way to pay my rent and this crazy thing happened where our interim minister left after half of her two-year term and so I came back and it's just been this wonderful open-hearted reunion of being with people that I know and I love and being there for this past year part-time has just been such a gift and being with Annie and watching Annie's leadership is inspiring to me too. I grew up in, um, in and around Boston and grew up UU, being in the choir and being part of the Our Whole Lives program as a young adult, young, as a young ninth grader, which is a comprehensive sexuality education program. So it just affirms what it is to be a human being. It was a really shaping experience and it kept me around thinking, this, this faith says it's great to be you. There's nothing bad or wrong or broken about you, you you're, you're lovely, you're human. And so being part of, um, you know, a faith that says you are in the world to change the world, you're born to manifest the glory that's within you, that's it's been a part of me figuring out how to live my faith. I became a chaplain at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And I did that for a number of years, and I found that my calling was elsewhere. I actually, I kept fainting on the job. It was, like, terrible. It was, I'd get really scared of what was happening and, mm. um, you know, so much blood or a domestic violence situation, it would scare me, and I'd faint, and it was terrible for the people who were experiencing a chaplain who'd come to be with them, and then I'd have to say, excuse me, i got to step out. And it was just, I wanted to do that job very much, but my my physical self couldn't mind over matter it anymore. And so mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to be in a little bit different setup that I could uh, not be afraid in that particular way. Mm-hmm. And I loved my ministry in Bedford, just knowing that it's coming to an end in a few weeks here. Um, it makes me sad, but it's been a wonderful chapter. And I'll, I, mi- I miss it already. So so I'm understanding that... that- you were here just for a year or whatever? Yeah, I did yeah. nine years and then I did a five year break and then I've just been back this one. And you're year. and you're and it so you're leaving. And it's, yes, it's it's ending. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we we've hired um we've called actually. We we say we call a minister when we vote um on, on their coming and we called a new senior minister. Um so Reverend Jamie Hinson Rieger is going to start in August. Um, and I will go back to exclusively being the Minister of Faith Development. Um, and then, yeah, we'll lose Megan, which is the saddest, but she'll still be around. Mm-hmm. I'll be the minister at First Parish in Waltham. Oh, good. Yeah. 
Oh, nice. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know them at all, and you know, my heart's in Bedford, so it's hard to it's hard to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, a new ad- new chapter, new adventure, though. Yeah. New new opportunities for change. Um, so today's today's show is going to be a, is about um, is about uh, social impact storytelling and. Um, you know, when the, the point of the, the podcast is to talk about storytelling and different types of storytelling. And that's why that we have such varied types of guests because we tell all kinds of stories and we do believe in storytelling can make a difference. Um, story, social impact storytelling raises awareness of issues in your community and around the world. And these impact stories put a face or a name on your organization, maybe bring your mission to life and provide a glimpse into the lives or the individuals of the community. And these stories are gonna connect um, with our emotions and sometimes inspire people to take an action, which is really the goal. I noticed on the website it was talking about welcoming folks of every sort of religious background with agnostics, humanists, pagans, theists, atheists, Jews, Christians, Muslims, and Buddhists united around worship, activism, and connecting the world and nature and the human society. Yes. <laughs> so that's a really casting a really wide net. It's a wide net. It's it a wide net. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you talked about the different communities that you support. Um, I know that you know we are ag- advocates and activists for the LGBTQ community, and I know that you are too. And I, you know, we drive by. We live really close by to the church, so we drive by the church all the time. So we always see the yellow and blue lights that are on you know, supporting Ukraine. Um, can you share some stories about any programs that you have in place to help these different populations? And have you seen any change in these areas? Yeah, I mean, you know, nationally, um, because I was just at this conference, it's really on my mind. You know, nationally, um, we are doing some really important work. Um, right now, we're helping... <laughs> you know, trans folks who don't feel safe in their home states anymore or people who have trans children who don't feel safe anymore in their states um, because they're being criminalized to move to safer states. Um, And I I think that's really important and it's new because unfortunately, while transphobia is not new, um, this particular form of backlash that's coming with all these laws that are criminalizing Mm -hmm. um, like things like drag shows, things like getting your kids healthcare that's gender affirming, you know, that's really causing people to be rightly very scared and, and want to relocate. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of our congregations that are in those red states, that are in those states with those laws, are really, like, fighting for people's lives. And they're, like, the one safe haven. Um, and they're under a lot of threat. And it makes me feel so, like, lucky to be in a much safer state, not to say we don't have problems. Um, and it also makes me want to, like, figure out how do we use our resources to support some of those congregations that are like on the front lines um, of those of those fights because it's uh, it's scary out there. Um, but I don't know if you want to talk about like what we do do at our congregation. Well, so I think a, a number of years ago, the Social Responsibility Council, um, which is our body of folks, uh, elected seven folks who... Um, uh, help raise funds and clarify how to use our uh, our vision and mission in service of doing good for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, social responsibility polled people because of your, you know, time at church. What what organizations do you care about? Are you passionate about? Do you 
do because like through church work and there were over 60 of them so you know the church was able to um, put up these solar panels in it and it was a sort of a groundbreaking situation because the um, Bedford's historical commission for for very good reasons wanted to take care of and preserve the beauty of one of the first three buildings in town to have a town become a town back in the early 1700s. You had to have a church, a meeting house, and a school. So just to sort of, without care, stick up solar panels on a, the, one of the oldest buildings in town got them worried, understandably. But through, uh, well, a lawsuit ultimately, but also through communicating about why this would make not only you know be able to have solar panels for first parish but make a statement that if you can do something you you should do something and many other local organizations said you know i guess it is possible to do an updated for the contemporary time thing the um, panels are also very non-visible they're not affronting to the eye but even if one saw them then someone might say wow this ancient building um, also supports change. We, we live in a world that's just a, you know, collapsing around us because of climate change. Mm-hmm. And to do nothing is selfish, foolish, and uh, without foresight for all the generations to come. Mm-hmm. So I would say First Parish cares enormously about climate justice work. I would also say, um, Immigration has been a very important part of um, just an awareness that the world we're a part of, do, do we need borders in the ways that um, treat some people as criminals and you know separate them from their families? And um, we were able to have a guest in our church sink, in our, in our church for three years. Her name's Maria and oh. What a delightful human she is. To have her live there was an inspiration to really anyone who met her personally, but also because she was there, all sorts of people could raise awareness of how you know ridiculous a lot of our systems are that 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 um, penalize and and harm and and terrorize folks who just want to live with their families in the states I really Mm -hmm. so all right so those two are some we've had people lie down in pipelines we've got uh, the idea of renaming um, Faneuil Hall because it's um, was named after a slave trader so there's our minister emeritus John Gibbons is working about uh, to organize to help support a name change Mm -hmm. Um, I remember being part of um, a group of, I'll say women, it was all women, Uh, I think it was all women, who are artists or who love and value the arts. About 10, about, about 14 or so years ago, they wanted to bring alive the traditions of art within our congregational life. So we had a series of events like during the sermon, somebody painted a, a, live, a live picture of a, a scene that she was felt inspired to paint while listening 
to the sermon, and it, it swapped artists during, during that. Then we had evening painting classes for anyone who thought, I don't know what I'm doing, this is not me, but I kind of want to try, and they came and painted. And so it started small, just little bubbles of people wanting to be involved with bringing the arts out into the community. And from there, all of these women created an, a gallery. I, I, I stopped even really going to any meetings because they, they really had the wind in their sails. They didn't need some stamp of approval from a staff member. There was just a, a yes to, to so much of First Parish life, but in particular at that time, this energy of creating a gallery. The gallery has been a place where young people had their art shown, people who were from an oppressed group had their their um, understand their statement about what it's like to, to be themselves understood more deeply. Um, recently, we had a group of people who want to show a Ukrainian artist, um, and it will cost a bunch of money potentially to have um, to ensure and protect the art because it's a very famous Ukrainian artist, and we imagine we might have the risk of somebody coming in to take it. We hope that that would never be the case, but it's going to be beautiful art, and we just approved having this um, um, show. So all of these shows have gone on for 10 years now, and I could say more of them, but you know, anytime somebody wants to see a beautiful art show, you just go upstairs to the gallery, and it's, it's really an inspiration. So. And just since you explicitly asked about LGBTQ stuff, I wanted to circle back on that, um, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, um, again, briefly mentioned this um, program called OWL, Our Whole Lives, which is a comprehensive sexuality curriculum that um, we have uh, curriculums that go from like kindergartners who are just learning about like, what is a body? What is a family? Like, how do I, you know, keep my body safe and private for me, the parts that are supposed to be private for me and all of that to elders who are dealing with like changing bodies and how do I be a sexual person in my last chapter of life. Um, but our, our kind of our flagship program of that program is the um, seventh through ninth grade curriculum. And we did just run um, that with like 16 kids who signed up and a lot of them are kids whose families are very involved in our congregation, but not all of them. Some of them come, you know, from out from the community to be part of this program. And it is a very gender affirming um, program. It's, you know, it's affirming of people of all genders, transgender identity, um, you know, all sexualities. Um, and it's something we try to keep really up to date. Um, and so I think that's a really important piece of education we offer, not only to our own youth, but to other youth. And the other, th um, the other thing that I think is so crucial in this area is our youth groups. Uh, Megan mentioned how beautiful our youth groups are. And they're like one of my favorite things about working, working at First Parish. I love our youth groups. And we have um, out trans kids in our youth groups, um, and we've really tried to create a safe space. Um, and I know, I think it's really important because, like, our middle school youth group has been really boy dominated this year, and and then it's like so sweet to me, like, to see these little twelve year old boys trying to sort of posture and be like, "Hey, bro, yeah, you're gonna do that, bro," but like all this, you know, sort of like traditionally masculine posturing, and they are like still so sweet, so kind. When someone says, you know, oh, my pronouns are he and they, they don't bat an eye. When somebody seems like they're same-sex crushes or whatever, they're totally supportive. Like, And that I don't think is happening necessarily in the school at large from what I hear. And I think it's really important that we create a space where people can feel safe and mm -hmm. be kind and loving and create mm -hmm. 
the types of masculinity that we want to be seeing in our world and the types of just people of all genders that we want to be seeing. Mm-hmm. No, very, very important. And, you know, we, we know that there isn't always a safe space, um, you know, for LGBTQ youth. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's important to be able to, you know, tell the story that, that that's out there and that's available. And here's, you know, you are welcome here and it's a safe space for you. So um, I really do appreciate you, um, you know, sharing that. Um, we're starting to run out of time, but I did want to just ask real quick about, you know, you, you talked about the, the, um, the solar panels. Um, you are a green sanctuary congregation. Yeah. That's due to the environmental Mm -hmm. ministries that you're doing or the, the social justice Mm -hmm. work that you're doing. Um, what other things are you doing with that? side of the side of the church we have a really active environmental justice committee um they're like these really dedicated organizers there a lot of them are involved in like mothers out front as well um and they really push us as a congregation to um, live these values like um with urgency and you know it's so hard right now with climate change we obviously can tell it's happening um it's terrifying a lot of us i mean i'm scared and there's so much urgency. And then to figure out what are the right strategic responses to the urgency is really hard. We just had a really challenging debate at our General Assembly where some young adults brought a very um, intense divestment resolution that would have taken a really big impact on the financial well-being of our association. Um, they brought it with so much passion and with like very real lived experiences of being like on the front lines of protest against line three in Minnesota and like being abused by the police and the police being bankrolled by Enbridge and knowing that we have some holdings in Enbridge and like my church is like sending cops to hurt me basically. And it was so heartbreaking. Um, we didn't pass the resolution because it was so, um, intense in its outcome on, on the, um, financial being of our association. And we had like a similar, much smaller, much smaller, much more chill, type of debate within our own congregation about divesting our little endowment. I mean, it's not little compared to most churches. We have a very large endowment compared to most of our congregations. Many have no endowment whatsoever. But compared to like real money, it's like, okay, this is not that big of a deal, right? But like but like deciding like, okay, are we going to divest from the top 200 fossil fuel companies? Are we going to divest from every fossil fuel holding period forever? Like, what is the right thing to do? It's so hard mm-hmm. because there's no clear answers. And so mm-hmm. I'm so grateful to our environmental justice committee because they push us and they say, like, we can do more and we can do more and we can do more. And that's how we keep growing mm-hmm. and we keep doing more because, as we know, like, this is an emergency mm-hmm. um, and we need to be responding as as best we can within the wild constraints of global capitalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A couple years ago, we had Bill McKibben come and speak. And I remember a moment at the end of his talk where he said, if you have finished your career and you're retired, you don't have anything to lose by doing something where you get arrested. And a quite elder person from our congregation lay down in a pipeline and said, go ahead, arrest me. Let's make this a front page thing where you're arresting someone who's 80 something years old. You can put it on. I don't, I don't need a resume. I'm not trying to prove to the next employer that 
you know, I'm a fine, upstanding citizen. In fact, this is our vision of a fine, upstanding citizen. Mm -hmm. Somebody who says, this isn't right. A very small group of people are getting extremely wealthy while the people at the bottom are struggling Mm -hmm. and our environment is paying the, Mm -hmm. the, the cost of this. So people think motivated by inspirational speakers, by people who sit there and do the research and put it out on our announcement list and those of us who read it and try to have those conversations in small gatherings of people to think, you know, it does take a small group of committed citizens to change the world. And that's mm-hmm. the difference that has ever been made. That's Margaret Mead. But, you know, we can make a difference um, in our social or uh, environmental justice group says you don't have to like everything that we tell you but we're going to keep trying to present the facts and the information so that we don't have our eyes glaze over and so that we try to do the one next right thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one one step at a time mm-hmm. yeah well that's all the time we have for today i could sit here and talk about this all day <laughs> um But I want to thank you both for being here and for sharing your stories and sharing the stories of social justice and change and the needs that that are out there for our young people, for them to feel safe and, you know, all the things that the UU is doing uh, to create that safe space. And, you know, we're hoping, you know, people will hear this podcast and the word will get out and, and, you know, you'll have more people coming to your doors saying, hey, we, we heard about you and we're, we want to learn more. So thank you very, very much for, for just your candor and just being honest. And well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. This was a delight. Thank you. And to our listeners, whether you hear us locally from the BTV studios in Bedford, Massachusetts, or across the globe on such podcast channels as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Prime, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Happy storytelling.